0: Welcome to the Critical Witness podcast where we talk faith, apologetics, evangelism and anything else we can think of. We hope you enjoy the show. says we're going live and we're live apparently so welcome to critical witness where uh i'm phil this is my mate dan i'm Dan. uh we're with dr andy banister for the next 55 or so minutes and uh we're going to be talking probably a lot of different topics but we're going to be aiming to discuss islam atheism and apologetics and whatever else comes up so um before we begin, uh, Andy, how, how did you become a Christian? And uh, what are you currently doing uh, with your time in lockdown? Uh, Wow,
1: yes, lockdown, two two big questions. Um,
0: Two big questions. So
1: how did I become a Christian? So I, um, we were chatting just before the show, actually, and finding some connections in geography, I grew up in uh, in South London, or South London, as we used to call it back in those days, and uh, raised in a kind of kind of good Baptist family you don't have to be a baptist to go to heaven but why take chances That's my <laughs> my motto and so very much grew up in the church and um and so in one sense there's never been a time i haven't known jesus but when i got to about 13 14 got a growing sense that i had to make my parents faith my own and i was involved with a great, it was a great youth group that i went to um interchurch youth group and they had a youth weekend away uh, on the cliffs above Hastings, a little village called Fairlight, and it was on a dark and stormy night, literally with the rain lashing down and the wind flapping the tent. That uh, the preacher that night—I can't remember who it was—but I just remember it being the first time that I really felt the gospel connecting personally with me, and felt this this urge that I had to get up and sort of go forward at the you know old-fashioned altar call at the end and say yes to Jesus. It wasn't just enough to sort of hang on the coattails of my parents' faith, and I was about 13, 14, and uh, then over the next few years, my faith sort of gelled. And, uh, and then really the, the the other big thing in my kind of journey of faith was was then uh, beginning to debate and dialogue with Muslims about sort of 10 years after that. And that was when I really was forced to begin thinking about the reasons why uh, I was a Christian, it wasn't enough just to put my trust in Jesus and, and believe the Bible, because it was the Bible, then I, I felt I really had to then sort of dig deep into its foundations one thing led to another Uh, in particular one thing led to another in terms of a PhD in Islam Uh, that led to uh, working with an organization called Ravi Zacharias International Ministries uh, in Canada as their Canadian director came back from Canada to the UK 2016 and came up to Scotland I'm now based in Dundee uh, in Scotland and I head up an organization called SOLAS hence the the logo uh, to the side of my, my screen here And um, that's an organization really focused on two things. Firstly, taking the message of Jesus out of the four walls of the churches and going into cafes, coffee shops, pubs, restaurants, universities, you name it. And really trying to engage people's questions and show why I think the Christian faith is persuasive. And then at the same time, we also teach and train and equip Christians to do the same, to share their faith at work, at home, at school and do it in a way that's uh, engaging and persuasive and winsome and generous. And so that's what I do. I speak, I teach, I write, I broadcast. I'm currently writing, actually, working very hard on writing a book on Islam at the moment. That's taking a a lot of my time. So lockdown, actually, um, in a strange way for us, has been a bit bit of a blessing because I'm usually so busy. I don't get time to write and I've had no excuse. Uh, So I'm always (laughs) grumbling about not enough time. And when lockdown happened, my wife went, right, shut
2: up and get in the study (laughs) and get it done. So that's my life right now. Good. Now it's um, it's good to have you on here. I was uh, chatting to my wife before. I actually said you're you're one of my top three favorite evangelists, and I, and she said number three. You know, I what? hope, for modesty's well, sake. Yeah, she said she said she said. But what, what what's the criteria for that? And I said, well, there isn't one. I don't, I don't know. I just sort of made it up. There isn't really. A criteria <laughs> like that. Yeah, that's <laughs> good. If there was a criteria, uh, so who yeah, are, are did... the other two, down Just out of interest. Um, I I'm
1: always intrigued well, to know who else people are drawn to and how find helpful. Mm. So who else? Well, this, this is when it gets... Um, um, yeah, you see, I can see the, the phone lines lighting up. People will be saying, why am I
2: not on Dan's list? What do I need to so, do to get on Dan's list? So I couldn't really think of any others off the top of my head, but I just realised I wanted to put you in that category. And I'm sure there's probably another two that, I'll would be, take that. Could, could be competing. Yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that to the well, bank. That's we should, we should <laughs> probably
1: put our
0: other two guests. you <laughs> got Glenn Scrivener and Glenn Peoples. There we go. With well, that, Oh, there you go.
2: That, that's exactly <laughs> it. I'm not one of them is an evangelist. evangelist. Yeah, well, you're in my top be. three list of podcast presenters with beards and glasses. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Yeah. What we go. could say is we, we've Lost interviewed out. two of the three UK's leading evangelists. There you go. I like that.
0: Yeah, sounds good. That could be on that. Um, so, yeah. Make it one.
2: <laughs> anyway, <laughs> hey, back to reality. <laughs> yeah. What? Um. I, I, you must be probably the only evangelist working in the UK who has a PhD in Islamic studies because I, I, I sort of googled you earlier, and I know you'd. Uh, I know you're working friends of you on Facebook and uh, you know I saw that you were writing the book on uh, Islam and um, as I said that you've got a bit of a niche there as an evangelist so what what, would be interesting to find out a bit more about why engaging with Muslims ended up Mm. leading to a PhD well that's quite a story I'm I'm not sure I'm the only kind of one we're a small but select bunch
1: so there's a there's at least one other person um, so you and listeners who've been tracking with you and stuff may be familiar with the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. Yes. uh, OK. And so Tanya Walker, who heads that up on the the leadership team there, an old friend of mine, she's also got a PhD in Islam. So there's at least two of us. um, Did not know that. We did our PhDs around the same time. So what led me to that, Dan, was it's interesting the way the Lord works and has a sense of humour. So in the 1990s, mid-1990s, I was a youth worker working for a group of churches in, in London, South London and i hadn't really thought about apologetics or public um, uh, persuasion of christian the christian faith or muslims really and then one day uh, a guy came to our church and did a seminar on uh, engaging with muslims and his name was jay smith Uh, you may have come across jay if if anyone any listener who hasn't put jay smith into youtube and jay's got (laughs) loads of videos and debates and things up there and every sunday he was going up the speaker's corner which is part of Hyde Park in London. And on a Sunday afternoon at Speaker's Corner, you can stand on a ladder or a box, or in the case of my height, a ladder and a box. And uh, you could talk about anything uh, religion, politics, sport, and get a crowd. And Jay was using it to preach to Muslims because there were lots of Muslims there. So I got talking to him after the seminar he'd given at my church. And uh, we kind of clicked. And he said, Well, why don't you come to Hyde Park to Speaker's Corner next Sunday? Come and see what we do. So that's what I did, and I met Jay at Marble Arch uh, Underground Station, and he had two step ladders, one over each shoulder. And I remember saying, "Why have you got two ladders, mate?" He went, "One is for me, one is for you." I went, "I thought you said come and see what we do." He <laughs> went, "All the best is up a ladder." I said, "I've never preached on the street." He went, "Oh, it's easy." I said, "I've never talked to Muslims. Oh, they're easy." Both those things were totally wrong, wildly <laughs> wrong, because I got up on the ladder, tried my best, and just got humiliated. The Muslims had objections. And uh, they were well experienced and heckling Christians. So they tore me to pieces. I'd heard objections to my faith I never even counted. Went home on the train thinking, well, maybe I need to become a Muslim because they have everything and I have clearly nothing. And uh, lay awake that night, tossing and turning. And about three in the morning, my long suffering wife said, why are you tossing and turning, keeping us both awake? I told her my story and her wise words were, why don't you read a book, ideally in the morning? Not a 3 a.m. <laughs> so the yeah, morning, I to a so bookstore, told them my story, and the guy behind the counter said, Well, you, you need apologetics. And I said, What's that? It sounds like a breakfast cereal, but it it's like wheatabix
0: <laughs> you know.
2: <laughs>
1: um, and he directed me to a dusty kind of spider infested corner of the bookstore. And I came back to the pile of books, still got some of them. I think uh, Josh McDowell, Evidence of the Man's Verdict, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, a few others. Went away, read and read and read for the next two weeks. Went back to Speaker's Corner two weeks later with answers to every flipping question they'd asked. I had the answers ready and memorized, got on my ladder, ready to go. And would you believe it? They had new questions.
0: And so for the next
1: three months, I would get humiliated in public on the weekend, go home and read. But through that, very seriously, God did a couple of things. He gave me a love of engaging with Muslims. I loved their passion. Um, He gave me a love of publicly uh, arguing and debating and articulating uh, the things of the Christian faith. And through that, actually, that led to study. I was 28 at this point, hadn't been to university. No one from my family had been. I wasn't that kind of family. Um, and I decided because I, felt, I fell in love with the studying. I went off to, to Bible College, got a degree in theology, and then one thing led to another. And uh, I kept pursuing that that sort of study, and
2: that ended up as doing a PhD in the Quran. Amazing. <laughs> what, um I'd be interested to sort of find out, like, what what, what for the people listening as well, like, um, what what would be the sort of top three most common objections that a Muslim might ask. You as a Christian, do you think? Well, oh, no, not you, any any sort of Christian. Yeah. And how might you sort of respond to those? Yeah, that's,
1: that's a very good um, question, Dan. So there are a lot of the same questions do come round and time again. I mean, I joked about you know, speakers' corner being new questions, but they were variants on the same question. So one of the big questions that Muslims will <laughs> ask is uh you know, or accusations they'll throw is that the Bible has been corrupted. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. Um, then there are questions uh, around Jesus. And uh, you know why do Christians worship him because the Quran talks about Jesus um, but presents him as just a man, just a, just a prophet, just a messenger of God of Allah and so uh, most Muslims believe that Christians uh, you know have committed gross blasphemy by elevating Jesus to, to deity so there are questions uh, around that and then there's a whole series of, kind of lesser questions uh, but a common one that you' you will run across is you um, concerns sort of the you know the immorality of so-called western christian countries so many muslims even those who've been raised in the west have often assumed that the uk is a christian country that everybody in it is a christian and therefore they look around and see the the, the things that go on in society assume that christianity is in is in favor of all of these things and therefore they write uh christianity off so those would be the three big objections how i'd answer them While answering each of them, you know, depending on how you do them can take a lot of detailed uh, work. And of course, if you're going to be a Christian, talk about your faith anywhere, you need to be able to probably address those issues. But very, very quickly, in terms of the Bible, the way I'll often go is to turn the question around. In apologetics, this is always very helpful, actually, is, you know, to turn the question around and push it gently back on your uh, questioner and often i'll begin by saying to muslims okay let me get this straight you believe that you know the bible and every scripture that came before the quran has been corrupted or or lost or misplaced and that finally god sent down his final revelation uh with muhammad uh in the 600s and that's the quran is that is that what you believe and i want them to to be clear that we that's what they they believe and they want them to affirm that and then they say well, okay now you've got a problem because now we need to ask did the bible did those former scriptures get corrupted because allah couldn't protect his word i he was a he was powerless he was some sort of second-rate deity you know who just simply couldn't stop people interfering with his revelation or or is it that allah didn't want to protect his word so do you have a god who's kind of careless and heartless and quite happy uh, to let the only way we can know about him uh, become corrupted or do you have a god who is just too weak uh, to do anything and uh, an impotent which is it and that's a that, that's those are the horns of quite a difficult dilemma and I'll explore both of those and then say, look, here's the thing. Um, I believe as a, as a Christian that the word of the Lord stands forever, as it says in the book of Isaiah. I believe, you know, God's word is incorruptible. I think you as a Muslim believe the same thing. Um, but, you know, sometimes maybe we hear an argument on YouTube or you read an enthusiastic pamphlet by an evangelist making an argument that actually has implications. Maybe you want to rethink a couple of things. And where I'm trying to get to, my goal in that conversation is to be able to say to them, look, why don't we just treat each other's scriptures with respect? I will, I'm will. i happy to talk to you about what the Quran says and not argue you know, about its manuscripts. So we can play that game, but but we don't have to. Let's just talk about what it says. And why don't we talk about what the Bible says and talk as, as adults about what we believe? Because um, I do not see any problem as a Christian, actually, in just discussing the content of the Quran. And I want my Muslim friends to discuss the content of the Bible. So that's how I'd address the, uh, that, that first one. We can, I can talk about the others if you'd like me to, or we can go a different direction.
0: Yeah, um, I, I, yeah I think just just in in context with the the whole Hyde Park and Speakers Corner Dan and I went as students f- f- uh a while ago and when we met at uni um and uh I just remember it being quite intense um yeah. the the and mainly muslim um with a few other alternative views on the world <laughs> um which Oh yeah <laughs> alternative is probably the best word to describe them um, but they the, they were very zealous, and, and you just sort of get bombarded with with all the objections in one go. Um, and it was quite interesting to to watch that. But I'm just intrigued. I, I can just imagine that first standing up on the steps. If, if anyone watches um, Soko films on YouTube, you can understand that Hyde Park is probably like it's generally you'd think the elite <laughs> <go there> to, <laughs> yeah, elite class. It's generally not a, uh, a place for amateurs to, to just, the elite and the foolish out.
1: Phil, it's the elite <laughs> and the foolish. And I was definitely in the latter category.
0: We,
2: yeah. should, we should give uh, Bob the builder a shout out there as well. Yeah, for, he's he's uh, really he's, I said he, he's, he's in, he's in the top 10. Yeah, I, I, like, I like watching his good. videos. Um, yeah.
1: I mean, what I would say to, to to that, Phil, I'd say a couple of things. It absolutely is a bit of a bear pit. Um, and actually it's interesting. I I think in terms of the New Testament, the, the place it reminds me of is, you know, that that scene in the book of the book of Acts where Paul is in Ephesus and we read that he he rents the lecture hall of Tyrannus mm. and uh, for two years debates with the Greeks and the pagans. And, and you know, those those kind of contexts, those kind of Greek debating halls, that was pretty much a bear pit too, with everyone kind of shouting and arguing. Uh, at once from other contemporary accounts so you know Paul was going kind to of right in there so mm. Speaker's Corner is definitely intimidating it's not for everybody um, I'm very grateful that I learned quickly you learn very quickly You would, what yeah. works and, and doesn't um, that's not my natural context now right. I, I don't you know it's not a place I have a great desire to go back to my the place I love engaging with Muslims now I do lots of sort of dialogue type mm-hmm. events where there'll be myself and a muslim will be given a topic perhaps you know sin and forgiveness in christianity and islam my muslim friend will talk for 15 minutes i'll talk for 15 minutes and then the audience asks questions and it's in the q a that the differences come out right yeah. that my challenge with speaker's corner was always you it, it encourages both sides to shout mm-hmm. um on say on the other hand you learn quickly and i often say to people if you're a student or you know if you're new to someone like london to international students i'll often say this go go and watch um and just be in the crowd actually it's mm-hmm. so, a it's a great place to begin engaging Muslims. If you're afraid of meeting Muslims, just go to Speaker's Corner and just hang out in the crowd. Yeah. You know, stand next to a bearded person who looks like they might be a Muslim, or it could equally be Dan undercover.
2: Um, <laughs> and then
1: at the end of something, you know, turn to the person next to you and say, "Hey, what do you think about that?" And often yeah. conversations will will start. But it is a it, Speaker's Corner. Isn't it? is a one-off place. Uh, just as an aside, you mentioned unusual, assaulted other types. My all-time favorite person at Speaker's Corner used to be—I don't know if he's still there. There was a guy called Barry. Uh, the christian atheist and he would stand over by the side of speaker's corner with a sign that said christian atheism uh, reject god but follow jesus and he never spoke he just stood there and one day my wife came down to speaker's corner to, to watch me uh, go at it and i think she got bored of the islam stuff so she wandered over to barry and she said so uh so what, what are you about mate what's your message and barry just goes oh no one ever listens to me She's like, well, I'm listening. What's your message? No one ever listens to me. So for five minutes, this went to and fro with Astrid going, so what's your message? No one ever listens to me. And she gave up in the end. So there's, there's poor old Barry, who was, you know, quiet <laughs> as a lamb and just stood there with his little Christian atheism sign. And so, yes, Speaker's Corner was yeah. full of eccentrics. I, but I the passion gr- is interesting. The thing yeah. I did learn at Speaker's Corner, and this is the piece we sometimes miss as Christians engaging Muslims, is there is that passion there. And sometimes mm. for, for British Christians... We can be a little bit on the back foot we're, we're, we've been taught by our culture to be quiet you know we don't put ourselves forward and i learned at speaker's corner uh, again not with every muslim but with many muslims you have to have that confidence to actually you know if they raise the volume you have to raise the volume if yeah. they step forward you step forward um and that takes a lot of co- courage and, and and confidence and um it didn't come easy but i'm that- very very grateful for what i learned there
0: I mean, a couple of times I went there. I did learn a lot, and and even if you don't have a step ladder, you just talk to people, and it does become you generally gain a crowd around you if you are willing to defend your faith. And even if you come out with a a bit of a blast like you seem to have, you end up you end up knowing actually there's some things that I can think through in a way that I've not thought through before, and um, that dialogue is really really fascinating. Where where do you do your the the academic dialogue that you were saying is that online or is yeah. that in when invited dialogue or yeah
1: so the um the kind of dialogues that i do I, I would say they're not so much they're not so much academic and they're not they're not organized in an academic setting but they are where i learned to do that was when i was in canada um with with am uh out there there's a wonderful organization in north america that you you know you, I mean, you may have heard of now because of course the internet's brought everything to our doorstep it's a wonderful organization called veritas the veritas yeah. forum and that that's their format that they get two or three speakers together and have a conversation. And what we found in Canada is people loved it because it wasn't a shouting match mm-hmm. and audiences loved it and you could get a crowd very, very easily. And then when I came back to the UK, we started trying the same thing over here. So. One of the things I've started doing, for example, I do a lot of university missions. I, you know, I, I do a lot of work and support for organizations like UCCF and Christian unions. And often when I'm invited to do a mission week, I'll say to them, look, as part of the week, particularly the start, because it will draw a large crowd, why not do a dialogue? You know, get myself, get an atheist. It works, this works with atheists as well, or get a, get a Muslim, um, get a nice contentious topic. And, uh, and you want the disagreement to come out, but what you want is the space for both sides to feel they can express their position and this works really well i did one at st andrews a few months ago and it was an atheist one we did one on the resurrection and mm. um and so yeah i mean it, it, it wasn't tr- it wasn't a debate per se but it had a lot of the aspects of that but there was space the atheist gentleman had the time to set his position out i had my time to set my position out and it was amazing we got over 200 people i think that night oh. and uh, many many atheists which was which was great and the feedback was was was, was was amazing. I felt my favorite conversation in the evening was I got talking afterwards to a, to a, to a young to a student who came up and chatted me at the end. And I said, oh, just out of interest, why did you come? Are you a Christian or are you a guest this evening? He went, oh, I'm sort of, I'm not a Christian, so I'm not sure what I believe, but I, I just came on my own. I said, oh, how did you find the event? He said, well, as I walked past the lecture hall, there was this massive queue of people wanting to get in. So I figured there was like a, <laughs> a band or a comedian or something, and they came in and he said, it was you, Peh. Um I said, what did you think? He said, well, I thought the atheist guy was, um insert expletive rubbish i went well you know to be fair he did his best but it's a it's a bit of a sticky wicket to defend if you're uh, you know attacking the resurrection is actually a pretty hard position because the evidence is overwhelming Mm -hmm. and then it was interesting he said yeah he said i had no idea i had absolutely no idea there was like evidence for this stuff i it's actually really shaken me he said i need to he said "I, i need to think further about this how do i explore this further And I said, well, the Christian Union are running this thing called Christianity Explored. I said, go and sign up. There's free food. You can come along, ask questions, no pressure. And off he went. But that was just really exciting to me that he just got drawn in by the crowds and then found it fascinating. So, yeah, we do it. We do a lot in that kind of setting. Sometimes we find coffee shops are good for this stuff too. Neutral Mm. settings. The thing we've learned is doing them in churches doesn't work. People, People don't like to come to a church if they're not connected. But if you go into their space, go to a university, coffee shop, um those kind of settings and uh, make them friendly have a bit of fun and i think particularly if the two speakers can show they get on yeah. um that's always been important for me i would say a good goal for me in the muslim ones is i want to go for a curry with a muslim speaker afterwards if we're at the stage where we can shake hands and go out for a you know a biryani or something afterwards it's success if we're going away
2: never speaking to each other something has something has gone wrong hmm. that's yeah, tr- the um We've, we've spoken to to Glenn a bit about the um, about Christian the, the missions week and the Christian unions and things like that, and we we kind of got talking, didn't we? Feel about the the nature of some of the um, the talks can often be mm. um, they're often asking questions, engaging in topics that a lot of people aren't actually asking. You know, like you know, does God hate gays? And you know, and actually. Most people are not. That's not what they're thinking. It almost puts sort of Christians on a on on the back foot before you've even yeah. started, because people are sort of primed to think, you know, to be on the sort of uh, uh, against this sort of horrific claim. Um, I don't know what was you, what's your experience been in terms of the kind no. of talks that have been you've been involved in.
1: That's a really good good question again, and I think. Um... Yeah, I would agree with with uh, with Glenn. I think we he and I have talked about this actually and we found similar kind of things. I think I think two things can sometimes go on in those in those mission weeks, and um, is I think sometimes there can be a temptation to it to try and ask the questions that nobody is is asking. So, you know, sometimes it's getting better actually, because I think, you know, I think a lot of students are just brilliantly in touch with what's going on, on the ground. But occasionally I'll get asked to come and talk on does God exist? And i'm like well i can do that but i don't think that's what most people are asking that's what we as christians wish they were asking Mm -hmm, uh, but they're not there yet um and equally we can start defending things that people aren't aren't yet throwing out sometimes it's helpful to throw those things in if there is there are some campuses where that's an issue what i find interesting actually is that the the questions that are being really asked increasingly i think are the more existential kind of ones i think a lot of people are asking questions about meaning and purpose and significance, and it was interesting. One of my, uh, one of my, co- one of my uh, colleagues. There's a there's a friend of mine called Christy May, and Christy is uh, an associate with with Solas, also based at Oak Hill uh, Anglican College in London. She did uh, both the Oxford and the Cambridge missions. Uh, was it this year or last year? Anyway, either end of last year, or beginning of this year, before lockdown, and particularly Cambridge, she kept a, a note of all the questions that came in during the Q and As every night, and then I, I blogged on them um and it was amazing if you look at the list of questions none of them were quote unquote traditional apologetics they were far more say meaning identity purpose significance uh, the hiddenness of god a suicide uh was uh, uh some really honest questions in there And she said i came away you know you know she's i thought i was in touch with stuff and, and 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 is relatively she said but i hadn't appreciated how much that's the case and i think that's incredibly exciting actually Mm -hmm. for those of us who've been raised on more traditional apologetics, you know, here are five reasons why the Bible is true. Here's 17 reasons why Jesus is the son of God, all beginning with the letter Q. Um, You know, (laughs) those are, those are great. But, but I think actually there's, I think people are asking far more spiritual questions actually. Mm
0: -hmm. And it was
1: interesting that COVID-19 and the pandemic, I think, has exposed this too. I don't know if you saw this, the, the Guardian, you know, a left leaning newspaper here for those who are not uh, UK people listening to this, you know, not friendly to Christians, especially, you know, around the story a few weeks ago, that 25% of Brits have watched a religious service of some kind Mm -hmm. online since lockdown began. And that figure rises to 33, one in three for 18 to 25 year olds. And to go, I think people are searching for things to do with meaning, purpose, hope, the British comedian Russell Brand. And if you saw that, Um, did a video cast the other week on why is everyone googling prayer that's had 2.1 million views the last time I looked and Russell is all over the place spiritually I mean my word I say he's all over the map there is no map yeah but the questions and then he did a follow-up podcast doing a, a debate with Ricky Gervais another comedian who's an atheist and there's Russell holding up the theist position and I'm like okay there is something going on and so I think the challenge for those of us who love Christ and, and loving, you know, sharing that news of people, how do we make sure we're, we're answering the questions that people, people are really kind of asking. And maybe that means we may have to rethink some things and put some of the books that we love on the shelf. Um, but they're also incredible new opportunities.
2: Yeah. I think we, we get, our, our views get quite warped, I think, as Christians, because we tend to, well, it's not just Christians. Everyone gets their, their views warped as you tend to ascribe the, What is in reality a minority position, as the one that um, is the most predominant view, Um, and so we think everyone's a sort of new atheist still, which is probably sort of ten years out of date now, Um, and and they're not—they're not asking those. Well, very few people are asking those types of questions, like you said, and it's often like um, even some of the uh, newer—I won't name some of them—but sort of books are in the last sort of uh, year, two, three years, like you said, they're—they're answering questions that appear I always think to be more like the questions Christians are asking rather than the ones five ever speak to anyone. Mm. Then they're, they're not asking, you know, necessarily about, yeah, is the is the Bible reliable? Um, what about hell? What about um, you know, does God hate this group or this group or this group? No one's ever I don't think anyone anyone's ever asked me that. The only I mean, like you, the people that have asked about the reliability of the Bible tend to be Muslims. Um I don't think I've Seldom had that kind of discussion with someone who isn't isn't a Muslim, and like you said, it's it, the real questions tend to be, you know, who am I? Why am I here? How should I live? You know, like, yeah, you know, I've got everything I need, and yet I'm still unhappy. So what am I? What am I? What am I missing? Why well, have I done something yeah, wrong? Yeah, it's interesting.
1: Yeah, that very example that you give, Dan, is is fascinating because I think it was a year or so ago. um You know, I saw a regular example of this. I was doing a mission week in Plymouth down to the south coast of the UK for for a week uh, with a church down there and sort of on the last kind of weekend that I was there we did a we did an open forum kind of men's breakfasty kind of thing where people could bring friends and we give them a a slap-up breakfast and I spoke was going to speak for half an hour on the pursuit of happiness uh, which is a topic we find is gets a lot of audience uh, yeah. engagement and i was wandering around the sort of tables beforehand chatting to people and got chatting with this gentleman and i did the sort of usual you know hi how are you you know why have you come today and he said well my neighbor um who comes to this church in, invited me i said oh really great 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 glad you're here why just why you know why did you why did you come what what drew you he went well he said it's the topic he said because you know, interesting that this question of happiness he said because he said let me tell my story he said for the past eight years he said i've been working two sometimes even three jobs because i wanted my dream in life was to pay my mortgage off like early i thought it was the best thing i could do for me financially and the family best gift give my wife and my kids so i've been working my fingers to the bone so we could pay mortgage off and he said um a month ago i achieved that dream i said i walked into the building society wrote the final check signed the paperwork and I pay the mortgage off 11 years early uh, you know amazing achievement I said so I've been living and living for this I thought that he said I thought that' would be the happiest day of my life I had the champagne on ice all kinds of things mm-hmm. he said I walked out of that bank the most miserable person on in the world he said because now the big question hit me full in the face what the hell happens next yeah. and he said mm-hmm. I was he said and this was the lie he said he said what happens if you spent your entire life climbing the ladder only to discover it's leaning against the wrong building? He said, "So that's why I'm here because I'm I'm wrestling with this question." So he's I like, "Jolly well, hope you answer it." He said, "The breakfast would be great, but I want to answer that question." Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. That was a, like a complete outsider, no church experience. But yeah, he wasn't asking, "Is there a God?" Any of those things. He was asking, "What's the point of life? What's it all? What's it all about?" Because the thing I thought it was all about turned out not to be. And again, coronavirus has done this right. Everyone's been living yeah. for their job. Their, you know, their standard of living, uh, they're just the, the everyday comfort, comfortable normality of, you know, knowing what tomorrow looks like. And then along came coronavirus, and suddenly everything's changed. We're all locked down. You know, lots of us are on furlough. Our, fu- our health is 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 insecure. Our finances are up the spout. And I think lots of people have gone struth. You know, the thing I was living for, turns out actually not to be not possible anymore. So either, you know, life is no longer worth it. And I should just jump off the nearest bridge. Or I've got to find some other answers, kind of quickly. Yeah. So, so how would you answer that question? i mean Oh, the pursuit of happiness question. Yeah. Um, well, here's a story. This is one of my one of my, I love that topic, and I love the, the talk. And it's um, and I use a framework that I'm indebted to an old Canadian friend. I've got a Canadian friend of mine called John Patrick. He was a medic. Well, he still is, but he's retired. In, uh, in Canada and he had this uh, talk he used to do called the four levels of happiness and he got this from somebody else so I forget who it's a great kind of pass the chain on and he said when he first told me about this talk he did he said what well, I like about it he said I use it on airplanes all the time the person next to me and he said I've had a 98 percent success rate in in using this approach to the conversation and people wanting to know about Jesus he said I'm a doctor you know we track numbers and so when he told me that I was like okay tell me what's going on here so the, the framework And you can use it like I do in a talk or you can use it in a conversation goes like this. You ask the person, uh, you ask the audience, you know, are you are you happy? Um, And uh, whatever answer you get from people, um, you you then say, did you know that the ancient Greek philosophers thought there were actually not just one, but four levels of happiness, uh, four ways when you think about happiness. You know, we live in an age where people love lists. People are hooked immediately. Are they really? And you haven't mentioned God or the Bible. You've talked about ancient Greek philosophers. It's safe, right? What could go wrong? (laughs) <laughs> and then you say, yeah, let me tell you about the first one. You know, l- happiness level one is animal happiness, food and sex. Um, you know, he, uh, John, the example John used to give, he said, I grew up on a farm and uh, provided you give a cow a, gr- a field, some, plenty of grass and the occasional bull, you don't need a fence. She's not going anywhere. But as human beings, we're the only creatures that can abuse Food and sex. If you abuse sex, you end up very unhappy. We see that all over our culture. If you abuse food, using it to cope with anxiety or depression, you end up with an eating disorder or alcoholism. Ends badly. In other words, if you try and uh, live your life at happiness level one, you end up unhappy. Then solution solutions to move up to level two. And the great thing is, you want to hurt you. That's the secret in a one-to-one conversation is wait, because you want the person to go, well, what's happiness level two? You say, I'm glad you asked. Happiness level two is having more of something than somebody else, perhaps in sport, you're faster than everybody else on your team. At at, uh, at work, you're the boss's favorite. Uh, If you're a university student, you're top of the class. You know, it's having kind of power uh, and and more of something than somebody else. And and it's fine, actually, most of the time, sport works this way in business and things, it's fine and so on and so forth. But again, if you live your life entirely at this level, you're gonna end up ultimately unhappy because it's totally insecure. One day you'll not be the fastest person in the athletics team. You know, one day someone else will join your course and their grades are greater than yours. One day somebody else will join the business and they're now the apple of the boss's eye and so on. And if you live, try and live your life here entirely at that level, then you're gonna end up unhappy. And the only way to solve that is to move to happiness
2: level three. Is level three. What well, is happiness level, level three, three guys? <laughs> yeah, yeah. on the edge of my seat. Happiness level three. Make is, is, yeah, same happiness way.
1: level three uh is living for somebody else, uh pouring your life into 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 the needs of somebody, uh, into, into the needs of another person. Classic example is parenting, um, but there's also things like charity work and this kind of stuff. You can you can do this kind of thing, but the problem is again, it comes to an end. You know, the kids grow up and leave home. We have a name for this. It's called the empty nest syndrome. Hmm. And it's a devastating time of life for many parents because suddenly everything you've lived for has walked off the door and gone to university Hmm. or the charity that you've been involved with. Actually the people you've been helping don't need your help anymore, they're okay. And the problem is you can't live uh, entirely for somebody else. Ultimately that will let you down too. And the other problem as well of trying to get your happiness at this, this level was pointed out by the great atheist Friedrich Nietzsche. And he pointed out that it's selfish because you're not helping others. You're helping yourself, mm-hmm. you know, you're engaging in good works and so forth, because it makes you feel good. And either way, you're going to end up again, unhappy at level three. And if you're unhappy at level three, there's only one solution. And that's to move up to happiness level four. And John's that's... genius move is when they say what's well, happiness level four and it's an <laughs> aircraft situation, John would always say, oh, um, hmm, yeah, I can't really tell you. I, I probably shouldn't tell you because you want them to go. What do you mean you can't tell me? You can't leave me all this way. Not so to... well, you <laughs> know, sometimes people get a bit angry if I mention what level four is. And because you really want that your person you're talking to to be going, what is happiness level four? And that, of course, is is spirituality. That's where John would then sort of say and that when the way you go in the talk is say, look, um, ultimately, you need to find and get connected. Something genuinely bigger than you are. And for most people, that's some form of religious faith. And that's when you're able to give you testimony. And you just say, look, as a Christian, that for me was when I encountered Jesus Christ as a teenager. And that point, you're just sharing your story. And then I, um, you know, the way that in a one-to-one situation, it's helpful to land that is to land it by saying, "Look, I'm not telling you or insisting you have to believe as I do, but I am telling you that unless you find something like that, you will ultimately end up unhappy if you aren't already." And so that fourfold framework, and say, and learnt it from my friend uh, John in Canada. Mm. And it's a really helpful framework, you can adapt it in different situations. And you know what is interesting is when you tell that to people, either one to one or audiences, you can see the nods of recognition, particularly Mm. as people get into their thirties and forties and fifties, actually, you know, in their twenties, they haven't yet figured this out. So you get into my sort of stage of life into your forties, you begin learning actually, Um, Mm. you know, you think having kids will be the most wonderful thing in the world. And it turns (laughs) out it isn't You think paying the mortgage off would be great. And it turns out it's nice, but it isn't everything. so you it's get this really resonance.
0: Yeah, How many that's... times have you have you tried that and yourself? Is that ninety eight percent sex success Ooh. rate? <laughs> <laughs> success rate. Well, I, uh... sure gonna... <laughs> well that was It'd level tired, one. Yeah. And that's what you talked about. Level one. Uh, level hey.
2: one.
1: Um, <laughs> well, I'm 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 interesting. I often think I'm a, I'm a I'm, I always feel very guilty for not being a very good kind of personal evangelist because I have friends who tell me these amazing aeroplane stories. I always sit next to the person on the aeroplane who puts the headphones on and falls asleep um yeah that's me too me too kind of thing it never happens i never get someone saying to me oh so what are you reading you know john lennox tells these amazing stories doesn't have to (laughs) me um what i would say when i've done this talk in the settings that i minister in which is the kind of coffee shop type stuff university settings i found this kind of angle going in for things like happiness significance identity uh much more fruit much more the q a is more open you have more people coming up to you afterwards and wanting to know more more opportunities to pray with people and then Just in conversations with things like sort of friends in our neighbourhood and our community, when I've woven this approach gently into those kind of relationships where I've got more of a long-term investment, again I see more more doors open than going and going. Hey, can I give you three reasons why God exists? Rather than you know, hey, just you know, just at a time like this when coronavirus is chaotic, you know, how do you find you know hope and kind of peace when the world is going mad? And to to angle in that way. Hmm. and i think that's yeah i think that the whole felt needs approach has been interesting it's been there for years it's not new in apologetics i mean you could argue francis schaefer uh used it. cs lewis uh used it i think Oz guinness um has used it for years for people that don't know what was one of my favorite apologetics books is a book called the long journey home uh by Oz guinness which is a, a wonderful weaving into sort of literature and art and and poetry and 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 that
2: kind of and the way that raises questions um it almost it goes back into. Even further, like it might, when you're going through it, it reminds me of like Augustine's sort of notion of disordered love, you know. In a, exactly. In, 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 in a, well, actually, funny you say that. Yeah, I use
1: Augustine in the when I do the talk length version of that. Yeah, that's exactly where we where we go. I use Augustine, and then there's a wonderful quote that that Keller popularized. Tim Keller popularized by uh David Foster Wallace mm. um, from from his book This Is Water where he, uh, there's a very famous quote where David Foster Wallace says, you know, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism, no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships mm-hmm. something, right? Mm-hmm. You can Google that for people who haven't heard that. And he is an atheist, just talks about what happens if you try and make money, sex, power, uh, your intellect the centre, and you end up hollow and uh, you end up hating yourself. And um, I think a lot of people realise this. There's lots of people writing into this space. I mean, it's interesting, someone like Jordan Peterson, who whatever you think of him, um, you know has changed the conversation in a few areas this is in his playbook as well yeah. i think a lot of people are realizing that there is a kind of existential crisis uh in the in the west um mm-hmm. i think particularly among men actually um mm-hmm. but more widely mm-hmm. too um because i think you know we've been told for so long these are the things you ought to be pursuing
0: mm.
1: and it doesn't work and as you say augustine and disordered loves if you love the wrong thing um you're going to end up hurting yourself and ironically hurting the thing you love mm. um I remember actually again, off this very same talk, uh, I did a version of this in the States few, a couple of years ago, two, three years ago. And it's very, very interesting because usually people talk about the money or the sex or the, or the career chasing stuff. But I had a guy come up to me afterwards and he said, just thank you for that talk. He said, it was incredibly helpful. He said, um, and again, gave a bit of his background. He said, I've recently come back to Christ. I was a Christian in my youth, walked away. Um, but he said, then what brought me back, he said, was exactly as you described. He said, that third, that third level of happiness. He said, I tried to, I thought my family was everything. You know, it's mm. I thought, you know, the thing that I was living for was my wife and my kids, but what I hadn't realized I'd done is I put them on a pedestal and they had to be perfect because they were everything to me. And of course, you know, ones, you know, wives and children are not perfect because like us, they're human. Mm. And, uh, and he said, basically I idolized my family to such an extent. I then became a monster because I tried to conform them to this, hap- this vision of what a perfect family should be. And I almost lost them my wife left me took the kids and it took a lot of marital counseling and finally he said it took discovering Jesus again and mm. realizing that no he is the only one who is perfect and when that piece went back in he said I was able to put the rest of my life back together he said thank God he said I'm back with my family my wife has forgiven me for me being wow. a total ass <laughs> um but it's interesting so even good things that's the interesting mm. thing right even the, the good things family relationships children um, if we make them the
2: center of everything that's a disordered love so so why are christians getting this so wrong in terms of you know we're writing we're asking all these you know you know if you pick up you know apologetics books you know typically the sort of uh again the sort of guys that want to sort of intellectually joust about um you know the ontological argument and and uh you know divine hiddenness and things which is probably a bit more relevant than that probably know, is more yeah divine hiddenness argument. definitely yeah um but why, 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 why are Christians spending so much time writing about answering questions that no one's hmm. actually asking? It just seems like we, we really are—we always, we're always just so far behind. Yeah. We're just playing catch up, you know. Because I, I, my sense is, in about ten years, there will be all these books coming out, you know, for apologetics about, you know, you know, dealing with all these questions. But we're sort of ten years too we'll late. We're, 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 yeah, we'd be something yeah. else by
1: then. Hmm. do you know it's a it's a good that's a really good question I think I'll be very careful to start with and say look there are there are quite a lot of people I think working in this space I would never want to give the impression it's like you know there's, there's a handful of us, myself and Glenn Scrivener and a few others I mean I think for example one of the things that first drew me to Ravi Zacharias ministries to us AM is Ravi um, you know back in the sort of 1970s late 70s early early 80s had got this um, I think Francis Schaefer had as well I think hmm. LeBrie was always very good at, at this, uh, I think say so. CS Lewis kind of further back. Um, and then today, there's all kinds of people I mean, you know, I mentioned Oak Hill, uh, oh, I, oh, a few minutes ago, because of Christie based there, you got Dan Strange, there. Dan stuff on, like on culture is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. But I think the reason that a lot of some apologists and apologetic enthusiasts, miss this is not careful, we speak in bubbles, the internet has made this worse, right? You mm-hmm. can, as um, a phrase that I think, I have a vague feeling it was a sociologist, a sociologist at MIT a few years ago, a few years ago, came up with this phrase digital flocking. that you know, we flock together with people <laughs> just like us and apologists do this. So we all hang around and we share the same stuff. And, you know, YouTube, Facebook does this, you know, the same mm-hmm. article goes round and round. And then, you know, younger ones come through and go, oh, I want to be an apologist. Oh, OK. I've just seen this series of articles go through by Bill Craig. Therefore, I need to do that. Yeah. And it's not so much Bill Craig's say fault, you know, because he's very logical and philosophical. It's just that everyone decides to copy him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the thing. That there's a lot of sort of copying going on. And I think one of the things I'm very grateful for when I first joined the RsLEM team in 2010, I remember sort of you know sitting down with Ravi and Ravi sort of saying, Look, you know, you need to be the very best version of Andy Bannister that, that God has called you to be. Do not try and be. Ravi Zachariah, so I'm not trying to be mm. Michael Ramston or Amy or Ewing. You have to be you because that's why we're growing the team. We needed a different range of voices. And that's what I think we need more of. I think we, we need more, more uh, men and women, and especially women and people, ethnic minorities too, because apologetics is very male and white. Mm-hmm. And I think that needs so. to change because everyone, you know, I think apologetics is for everyone. Everyone who's a Christian is called to give a reason for the hope that they have. And we need to encourage people to be themselves. We need to then encourage people to listen to those around them. Um, And often I I say to to, to young, you know, would be evangelists and apologists is like, you know, read two or three apologetics books, you know, read, read Bill Craig's Reasonable Faith that will equip you on all the major philosophical arguments, read two or three other bits and pieces, but then stop reading you know more apologetics books that say the same thing start looking at what your friends look at the place where god has placed you what are your colleagues your neighbors uh your family members into what's going on in the culture what are the movies saying you know what's the one what of number? what's the top three you know songs in the charts what what are the themes what's what's in the newspaper you know right now if, if somebody was heading into apologetics i'd say you know stuff on race and identity you look at the whole black lives matter and all of this stuff yeah. and to go you know coming after that issue with uh with the ontological argument isn't going to go anywhere no. we need christians who are equipped to talk about about hatred and division and identity um not, so i think there's a huge opportunity out there but yeah we need to stop living in an echo chamber listen to those uh those around us and uh and just encourage younger younger folks i mean obviously you know i'm an old fogey so you're younger folks but yeah for your yeah, <laughs> folks of your generation and stuff going, <laughs> i'll take <"Yeah>, it don't <laughs> And that works really well. I mean, a really good example of how I've seen that is that, you know, a few years ago, you know, the go to apologetics book that everyone was reading. And it was brilliant. Right. It was Tim Keller's Reason for God. Utterly fabulous book. Mm -hmm. Um, More recently, um, about a year or so ago, a couple of years ago, there was a wonderful book by uh, an American. Well, she's British, but now lives in the States. A lady called Rebecca McLaughlin came out called Confronting Christianity, which in one sense is is the updating. Of reason for god but it's brilliant because rebecca has you know she's uh writing into that space as a, as, a, as a as a female intellectual uh she's listened really well spent lots of time on campuses listened to what the questions are and so she hasn't simply gone out and done exactly the same thing as tim did but she's done what tim did then she's gone and gone okay what are the questions uh and how do we engage with those mm-hmm. um and i think if you do that you have a wide audience uh, yeah. but if you just do the same old same old i think people will will get tired and related to that, actually, the other thing I think as well, and this connects to our stuff on existential bits and pieces, is let's also be finding ways to encourage, you know, Christians who have a calling to use things like the arts and music and, and literature in apologetics, you know, apologetics has got itself rather tightly connected with philosophy, but you know, why was C.S. Lewis so influential? Cause he could do that piece, but it was also the imagination and it's through the imagination, um, that, um, that you really influence people. I think it was the, and I think he's a Scottish poet. I should know this. One of one of the writers that Ravi liked to quote was Andrew Murray, uh, who once said, "You know, let me uh, let me write the songs of a nation. I don't care who writes it. Who writes its laws? In hmm. other words, it's through the the arts that we have the biggest influence. Yeah. Um, and I think again we've missed that piece.
0: Um, so that's yeah. my hope and prayer that I the, think the well, next well, CS
1: Lewis's are out there.
0: One of the the biggest things I've noticed. With, with apologetics people are going into apologetics almost for ap- apologetics sake at least that seems to be the case from what i'm seeing on on the potential echo chamber of twitter and and the sort of recycling of different apologists and you in uh interviews you've got then the debates and then the debate reviews and there's this kind of apologetics cycle and um it's kind of become a bit of a machine but i think in terms of engaging with apologetics in my own confidence has actually come from engaging directly with the bible yes. <laughs> for one and <laughs> and how and how to read the bible and, and most of the attacks from the dawkins from the new atheists are actually more cultural critiques yes and they are using very hyperliteral frameworks when they come to the Bible and then they go, well, this is what your God says. And it's well, no, it's not because you've got to interpret it. You've got to figure out the exegesis. You've got to work through that. And actually, my understanding of the sort of exegetical background, it has actually helped me figure out better answers to mm-hmm. these, these attacks on on Christianity. And once you worked out that actually Western culture is so different from Middle Eastern culture, that actually to to try and apply Western rationalizing onto the Bible, you end up with a mess and and generally you end up with new atheism. And and so my my actual response, to kind of some of the stuff you're talking about is is getting to the heart of it, but mm. getting to the heart of it with the Bible and how the Bible speaks to justice, to liberty, to yeah. love. And I mean, the Psalms are in themselves. If, if they don't give you a framework for poetry and art, then <laughs> where else are you going to get them from? So I, I think just as a sort of point yeah. to echo what you were saying, one of the biggest things for me, for uh, if anyone was going into apologetics, I would say, well, actually sit down with the Bible Project, <laughs> just watch their videos, listen to their podcasts and figure out what the Bible actually says about stuff. Yeah. Um, because big topics I, I just find things like big topics like um hell for example they're just regurgitated answers from people that in the echo chamber and there's no uh the, the foundation around it is a little bit flimsy if if anything and it's sort of like well c.s lewis said this about hell in The great divorce is like, well actually what does the bible say about it um and we, we end up with Uh, a sort of a framework that isn't biblical in our apologetics um and then when 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 we find people actually knowing the bible better than us we go oh i didn't realize that was in there and can kind of get stuck (laughs) and is is there anything resource-wise that you found like that that has actually isn't actually in the apologetic section of the library but has really grounded you in a way that yeah expands your your evangelism and your, your apologetics
1: Oh gosh, Phil. There's so many things in 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 there um, that I think are, are crucial. I think to to pick up on a few threads and what you've said. I think, yeah, at the risk of probably be offending a few listeners. I go for think it. It's early days.
0: <laughs> early days. Early <laughs> we day. need some controversy to get just us gone up. from
1: seven to five. The um, <laughs> I think apologetics for its own sake is just showing off. Actually, if we're not if we're not careful, it's just a case. that If we're not careful, it can be intellectual posturing um it has to to me it has to be connected to two things it needs to be connected to evangelism mm-hmm. or it needs to be connected to discipleship ideally both yeah. yeah actually um ideally both i mean you think that you know that famous text that so many of us know first peter three fifteen: always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have to anyone who asks you that's the, that's the context of evangelism that's not you know always be prepared to give a reason for why you hope you believe to the to your fellow believer uh, and see who's read the most footnotes um so I think to ground it in that context and that, that, that keeps it sort of, um, you know, focused on the on the on the kind of ministry end of, of things. How does this build other people in the church up? Um, how does this be, how particularly does it help me reach out to my, my friends is the first thing. Secondly, the point about the Bible, you're dead right. And actually, when I meet when I meet, I often get people you know approaching me and saying, hey, I want to go into apologetic ministry. How do I do it? That's so often the case. When I was with Arzalem, it was often how do we get how do I get a job with you guys? Because mm-hmm. they knew that we, we hired a lot. And um, my answer was always, was always, always very similar was look, you know, make sure you know the basic arguments that's important. Sure. But go out and start doing evangelism. You know, I don't want to hear about, you know, about your presentation on the Kalam cosmological argument, you know, keep Kalam and carry on or something, but um, <laughs> um, you know, I want to hear about, you know, how are you sharing your faith? Uh, and then it would be interesting because people often go, well, like, cause I'm not, I'm not in ministry right now. Yeah, but you're at work, you're a university student. You've got people, how are you, how are you reaching out? Because if you're not, I have some questions. And then secondly, I'd always say to people, particularly if they're thinking of studying, go and do theology. I'm so grateful that when I went to university when I was 28, after the back of Speaker's Corner, I didn't go straight into apologetics. Well, actually I never did apologetics per se. I obviously did Islamic studies at PhD, but my undergrad was theology. And I'm so glad that grounded me in the Bible, grounded me in New Testament, Old Testament, biblical languages, um, all of that stuff. Um, because otherwise you can go to some really weird places and yeah i occasionally hear phil occasionally hear some you know enthusiastic young po- apologists pop up on a youtube channel and give an answer to something and i'm like well that sounds lovely but i'm not sure that's biblical i think there's at least three heresies uh, in there <laughs> and then ultimately the other reason i get worried if we don't do that we also give the impression that apologetics isn't for everybody you know mm. i meet mean, so many people in the church who think that apologetics is for ivory towers you know it's great if you've got three phds like john lennox and you're you know bright and smart and stuff you know i know when i went off to study apologetics and uh you know and, and philosophy and theology and these things my mum, who's been a christian for years you know not being wildly enthusiastic she i think her line was oh you're not going to become one of those boring ivory tower theologians so she didn't see this as a good thing yeah. um we've got to get it down a level and connecting mm-hmm. it back to the bible does that and when i when, when i teach or train on evangelism as I do in churches up and down the country what I usually I don't often teach any much in the way of straightforward apologetics I teach some basic stuff on how you ask good questions Uh, Mm -hmm. so I use like Randy Newman's book questioning evangelism great great books that kind of stuff Um, because that I found if you've been a Christian six weeks or 60 years and then I always end teaching people how do you connect this to Jesus and I always say look for points in the conversation with your friend where you can say look this conversation reminds me of something that Jesus said reminds me of something that Jesus did, reminds me of a story that Jesus told and get people into the into the gospels. But to do that, you need to know the gospels well and you need to kind of be immersed in scripture. And one of my, you know, inspirations in this, we mentioned earlier, I mean, I think Glenn Scrivener um, has done an amazing job because he's so, you know, you look at Glenn's YouTube channel, there's a lot of it, it's just, you know, Bible teaching. He knows the scripture so well and he can also communicate well. John Lennox is another person I think like that. John, you know, amazingly gifted apologist But people forget he's a Bible teacher, first and foremostly. So, yeah, we need to be grounded in the scriptures. We need to be in love with Jesus. And then the other piece, actually, Phil, that is often missed is we need to be prayerful Mm -hmm. as well, because at the end of the day, you know, arguments don't win people. Um, Arguments can remove obstructions. But ultimately, Jesus needs to call people and the Holy Spirit needs to work in people's people's lives so we need to be people who are you know committed to the arguments and the life of the mind but we also need as jesus said love the lord your god with your heart your your soul and your mind mm, definitely
2: i'm keenly aware we, we've only got you till nine and it is i have so nine. we're probably one last question um, we can probably do so then we, can, we can two really little ones make a big one two little ones All right, <laughs> so I like you sneak um, it. Yeah, yeah. So, um ones. Uh, what, what we what we usually like to ask is um you know what What Christians are there out there writing, speaking uh, that maybe people listening haven't uh, heard of uh, that you might want to tell us about, and maybe just a couple of book recommendations. I know uh, some self-confessed bibliophile, as maybe uh, as many people listening might be as well. So, you know, sort of books Christians to read. So, like you said, maybe not apologetics books, but books you think uh, you know that Christians listening would would benefit from spending the time uh, reading.
1: Yeah, wow, great questions. It's very telling you to say in terms of book recommendations, well, of course, there's this wonderful <laughs> book called The Atheist that didn't exist available. Um, which is a very good book. It made me laugh. Thank you very there's, much not many, there's not many uh,
2: books I read that make me laugh out loud. So it was
1: good. Well, the funny thing is, I mean, I'll mean, i tell you a story, which is funny. I mean, the, obviously, for anyone who hasn't read this, you, know, you as you know, you need to read this and the footnotes, because the footnotes <laughs> are where most of the comedy gold is to be found, the amidst the dross. But the new book I'm writing is on Islam, and it's called The Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God. But I'm very conscious that so many people have been texting me and messaging me on Facebook They say, Oh, I can't wait that I hope it's got fun at comedy footnotes. So I've realized I made a rod for my flipping back because <laughs> I've got to get humor into a book on Islam without offending Muslims who are not known necessarily for their humor. So it's gonna be a strange beast, but there we are. Um <laughs> yeah that's a great question so let me let me suggest a couple of things in terms of a book recommendation i, I always like to recommend things that are um you know front and center of my mind So i recommend two books one that both that i've just finished uh recently one um anyone who follows me on facebook will know i've been plugging it hard the last 48 hours there is an absolute wonderful book uh called Con- uh, consumed by rage uh, redeemed by love written by mm. thomas terence and um, Tom is, uh, was connected with Arzalim for a while. He was heading up an organization called the, then called the C.S. Lewis Institute in the States. But his testimony is incredible. He was um, he was basically in the ni- late 1960s, early 70s. He was a terrorist. He was uh, uh, deeply, deeply racist. He was involved with the Ku Klux Klan, Ku Klux Klan in the States. And the book opens with a story of him and uh, a colleague uh, driving um, across town to blow up the house of a prominent Jewish businessman and uh, walking into an FBI ambush. And the FBI had basically been briefed by Jared Cahoober to not just arrest them, to take them out. And uh, he survived, he shouldn't have survived, and was thrown into maximum security institution, uh, prison in the states. And while there, I was converted to Christ very powerfully. And he's got an incredible mind and just read and read and read and uh, the Lord turned him around tremendously and then led him into a ministry of recon- racial reconciliation. And he works in that area now. Mm. And given all we're facing, and I think Christians and some of be a bit flat footed around issues of race, it is by far, I think, the best book I know for addressing some of the cultural challenges around now, around race, identity, black lives matters, because he isn't trying to address them directly. It comes naturally through the story. So consumed by hate, redeemed by uh, by love, Tom, uh, mm. Thomas Tarrants, And um, if you can't remember that title, just look at my Facebook feed. I've been plugging it the last mm. day or so. I knew, I known, I've known Tom for a while, so I knew his testimony, but hadn't read his book. It came out at the end of last year, but I read it last night and I don't often read books in one sitting. I picked it up at half past seven when the kids went to bed and I finished reading about midnight. And I only, wow. bro- only broke to refill my tea wow. and it was just incredible, incredible story. Um, so yeah, that's a huge recommendation. And then we started talking about Muslims at the start of the conversation, mm-hmm. didn't we?
0: Yeah.
1: And a really good book, uh, again, by somebody that most uh, listeners won't have heard of because he's based in Australia. And uh, there's a friend of mine called Richard Schumach, who's one, written a wonderful little book uh, mm. that's available through uh, SPCK, put this out uh, a few weeks ago called Jesus through Muslim eyes. Wow, and it's fantastic. a very clever little book. It just picks up on the fact that the, the Quran mentions Jesus a lot. So Richard starts there and just builds gently, gently, gently from there across the Jesus of the Gospels. A uh, very sympathetic, very fair, uh, you know, attempt to engage with what the Quran says, what Islamic tradition says, and then just gently untangles it and pulls on the threads. And then basically leads you as a reader into why the Jesus of the Gospels isn't just more reliable, is actually more compelling uh, mm-hmm. and why you want to follow the Jesus of, of, of Christianity and not the Jesus of Islam. And it's a brilliant book if you want to understand Islam and particularly if you want to understand your Muslim friends and even potentially as a gift from a Muslim friend. It's a book you could give to a Muslim and say would mm-hmm. value to hear what you think. So I'd recommend those two those two things. Um, and then one last tip I'll leave you with. So it's two books and you said other kind of resources, you know, as I think back through my, you know, sort of apologetics career, ministry career, such as it is, you know, the, the biggest influences on me have been, you know, the Bible and good theology and, you know, people I've looked up to and admired, but also someone said, something someone said to me early on is put time into learning how to communicate. And um, that's a piece that people miss. Mm-hmm. So my other advice to people listening to this, who are the great communicators? Of our, of our era, and that's why watching movies, um, stand-up comedy has been a big one for me. I'm, you know, a, a stand-up comedian who can stand up in front of an audience and hold a, a crowd for ninety minutes. Um, you know, a, a big influence on me as a young speaker was Steve Jobs, the, the former head of Apple. You know, I often say to people, you want to know how to speak really well, watch the, the uh, 2007 iPhone launch. He mm-hmm. talks about a little black box for ninety minutes, and you would think that it's the second coming of Jesus. Um, and mm-hmm. what can we learn? about how to tell a story, how to hold an audience, how to engage people. Because sometimes I think we have great arguments, but we don't present it well. That's what the new atheist did really well. That's why Dawkins and Dennett and those guys were successful. They took old arguments, not particularly good arguments, but they were well packaged Mm. and rhetorically very powerful. And I think we sometimes miss rhetoric. So two book recommendations and a general recommendation for people watching. Take the time to really practice how you communicate um and and look for models you can you can learn from be they christian or otherwise don't just listen to sermons uh you yeah. know listen to other great communicators and uh, and look for things you can learn oh, uh, so there's so much in there
0: because <laughs> i for. talk to you for another hour on half of those oh seasons.
1: this is fun I, i'm so sorry i only had the 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 the, the hour because of family commitments okay. but that's all I'm good all good happy to do uh, this again
2: sometimes so uh, no that'd be good i like you i like that you, met, you mentioned steve jobs i actually listened to his 2005 uh uh stanford university oh the like stanford commencement, commencement address yeah, yeah that was that was that was really good i listened to that today because it was in um it was in jonathan Sachs's book morality um he recommends listening to that and i forgot about it until i was went for a walk with my daughter today but, yeah and there's,
0: de- there's definitely something about communicating mm. well uh, This that's such an important point we've got andy kind in a couple weeks time oh uh, excellent andy's so a good friend talking so, uh, about comedy does that really well we'll uh, we'll look forward to that and uh but I, I think just oh yeah so much on that i'll i won't extend your time you got family stuff so um but thank you so much for coming on and talking with us andy we've we've had some it's
1: been a delight i've enjoyed it immensely uh, phil and
0: dan thanks yeah we'll uh, thank we'll you. try and plug another another time soon maybe to talk about uh the communication aspect because i think that's that's a huge part of apologetics that's also
2: missing and your new book and a new book yeah, yeah. that's when, not when due that out, out till next spring but we could definitely spring.
1: do
0: that near the time yeah that'd right. be great well hopefully this uh this small channel will still be going strong by next spring we'll see You'll have millions <laughs> millions of listeners by then you know you've, you've got andy kind coming on he's got yeah, he's got a it. following he has got a following so yeah hopefully we'll- it, man. <laughs> Cool. Really nice to see you. And uh thanks nice to luck. those who are watching. Uh we had a couple nice comments from One Truth Project and Power Lister and Stephen Prescott. We're all watching, so thanks for watching tonight. And uh we'll leave it there. Dan, anything else to say?
2: No, just thank thank you very much, Anna. So it was a real, real pleasure getting to chat with you. Cool. Oh, it's been great fun. Thanks a lot, guys guys. Cheers, bless. Andy.
0: Bye bye. See you later. Are
2: you not entertained?
0: Thank you for listening to the critical witness podcast if you enjoyed what you heard then please like subscribe share we're on all your major social media apart from instagram at the moment but please do get in touch we'd like to hear what you thought and if you'd like to support the show find us on patreon.com